The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. 1 Peter chapter 1. You're going to want to find that. Uh, hopefully you've got that. We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Peter. Uh, we are celebrating six months of being berries. What? I don't know what you call yourself if you're from Barry. Why wouldn't you just call yourself a berry? <laughs> we are, this is our sixth month of being a berry. And... Um, we, we bought a house back in August. I think it closed on August 11th, 2016. However, that house, it was ours through a transaction, but it wasn't our home. We've been living in it and making it our home ever since. A house only becomes your home as you live in it. The words house and home are related to the same idea, to the same concept, but they convey it differently. It's the same with the words sanctification and holiness. They're related to the same concept, but they convey it differently. We are sanctified because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us, and that's our standing before God. But it's as we live in that standing that we become holy, and that standing is at beginning too great for us. It's like Jesus cloaks us in his righteousness, all that he's got around him, and he died and he lived again, and he puts all of that on us, and it's like we stand there in front of the mirror in, in our big brother's old clothes, and we've got to live into it. It's too great. Right? That's our sanctification on the day that we trust Christ. It's there. It's something we have to live into. It's handed down to us like those old clothes, and we've got to fill them out over time. But Jesus' sanctification only becomes your holiness as you live in it. Our culture needs more people that are going to be living holy. We need more holy people if we hope to move past all that makes us nervous. Otherwise, we're going to see more and more and more sin until ultimately we have no culture left to speak of. You can see this pattern over and over and over again in the scriptures. There's a lot of things that make us nervous these days. I have a slide here that you may have noticed some of these things on the news. There's all these things going on. There's issues about justice and legal equality, defining the family, trade agreements, lowering the cost of education, managing the environment, saving habitats, welfare and taxation, placing pipelines, immigration and border security. There's all these things going on. And it's, it's crazy, and people are at odds about this. We have presidents and prime ministers going to have meetings about these very things. And then you guys got to get into traffic and transportation back and forth from Barrie to Toronto and wherever else you want to go. And into that, people can go nuts. They can go nuts if they want to. But the church must remain focused on holiness. Holiness is what God wants in the face of cultural anxiety. Holiness is why we were born again. Being holy means that we stand apart from the chaotic nature of a nervous culture. We get beyond watching opportunities for profit so that we can profit from the changes going on. And we stop worrying about how bad things could get. We set ourselves apart from all of that because of sanctification. By Christ, we've become a sanctified society. That's what it means to be the church. And it's God's will that we become holy. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to us. That's why we have all of Scripture. And that's why Peter wrote this letter. In the portion of Scripture that we're going to be studying today, we're going to be seeing five activities that the sanctified church does in an anxious culture. We'll find these activities here in the scripture, and they're all going to be stated in a ready-to-apply fashion. 
I've got it like a list, and I need to warn you, I need to remind myself that we're going to do this as though we were taking a helicopter ride over the Grand Canyon. We're going to buzz the thing. We're not going to go down and hike on our stuff. We're going to see some of the major ideas, because if I get in there, we're going to stay too long. All these statements are, are really deep and rich for us, but I want to cover five of them with you this morning so that we can work on being holy instead of being anxious. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just, just ask you to make this moment your own. Help us to live into it. Help us to take the sanctification that, that we just celebrated in song and through communion and move to now to make it holy, Lord. That we just find ourselves growing into the clothes of righteousness that Jesus gave us. God, I ask for your help. It's always a great privilege and a great burden to preach your word. I just want to make sure that you help me get out of the way, Lord. Open our hearts. As Pastor Roger prayed, Lord, give us a sense, a fresh, a fresh um, sense of what you want us to do, Lord. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you turn, you should be at the passage now. We're going to take this in little pieces as we go today. Uh, it's a long section, and uh, if I start reading it now, if you're like anybody else in the room, you'll forget what I said in the very beginning. So I'm going to just keep reading scripture as we go through and apply it as we go along. And I want to talk to you about these five activities for the sanctified church or the sanctified society in an anxious culture. And the first one is that we hope in the coming grace of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 13. Starts off with the word therefore, and if you want to know what therefore is about, go back, check out my sermon that I'd given on 1 Peter, the first verses uh, in this chapter. I did that a little while ago. You can find that online, and um, you can look what that's all about, but we want to focus on the next words. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We hope in the coming grace of Jesus Christ. So one thing we want to note right away is that we're not saying that we have a hope, that this hope is a noun. We've discussed it that way as a noun already, but in this section, set your hope fully is actually a verb. It doesn't look like a verb in the English language, but it's a verb. It's the idea that we hope. Like we jump, we hope. We, we, it's a verb. And this verse is about action we take because we are sure Christ is coming back with grace. So to be holy, we hope actively. And if you notice these words, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, the setting of active hope involves mental clarity about what's really going on. Yes, there's all those things listed that we talked about in the very beginning, but sanctification gives us the opportunity to see situations bathed in the light of Jesus Christ rather than look at them in the shadows of our ignorance and our foolishness. And once we become aware about what God's doing, it's our job to remain clear-minded about these things, to remain alert so that we don't get fuzzy again with all the things that make us anxious. At the time that these, this letter was written, there was a lot of anxiety that could have happened for the church. They lived in what's now called modern-day Turkey, referred to as Asia Minor. All the different cities are listed there in the first verse of chapter 1. Um, places like Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia. These are places that if you find them on the map, they're in Turkey now. Um, but the leader at that day was Nero, and you can Google him and find out that he was a very controversial figure from history. Lots of things happened in his reign, and a lot of it was underhanded. Some good stuff, some bad stuff. Some people profited, many people suffered. 
Rome, the nation, was fighting to advance its borders just beyond Turkey, and the region where they were living, they were in war, and there was some stuff to be nervous about there. Whatever happened at the seat of power in Rome would make waves throughout, the, throughout all of Europe and into this area. And so Christians could be nervous. And on top of all that, it's very likely that the reason many of those people were living in those areas, people that started off Jewish but became Christian, or people that had heard about the gospel when Christ and his disciples were preaching that, they had to flee their homes. They had to leave because of persecution. So there was much to be nervous about. And they could have got fuzzy, but we're supposed to remain clear. So Peter spoke to them like the leader of an army. This word, um, prepare your minds for action, it's kind of like lace up your skates. Pull up your socks. Roll up your sleeves. We're going to go do this thing. We're going to go be the church. But it's actually in reference to your mind. Get your mind right. Be ready for action at any time. It reminds me of the idiom, keep your wits about you. You've heard this? You've heard that? You don't say it, but you've heard it, right? You keep your wits about you. What does it mean? I had to go back to um, the dictionary here. It says to be ready to think quickly in a situation and react to things that you aren't expecting. To be ready to think quickly in a situation and react to things that you aren't expecting. And our reaction to things that we aren't expecting, get this, has to be holy. Right? So you're going to ask me, how can I react in holiness to something I'm not expecting? How could you ask me to do that? Right? How can I react in holiness to something I'm not expecting? Well, you can be prepared by determining ahead of time what you'll focus on. You have a choice. You can fix your eyes on the trouble right in front of you, or you can fix your eyes on the grace that will come with Jesus Christ. It's not that you take your eyes off the crisis. It's still in the foreground. It's like the little trick that you do as a child or, or, where, you, where you take a finger and you put it close to your face and you look at it and cross your eyes or whatever. Or sometimes you make a finger float and you see it and it's focused. And as you do that, you can do this with me, you, you notice that everything behind it is unclear, Right? But if you look beyond those fingers right in front of your face, you'll see that the things become clear behind and the thing in front of your face becomes fuzzy. So if I do that right here, I can see my finger and I can focus there and I can see Ian. And he's clear and this, this is not. And that's the idea. We have crisis, we have anxieties, we have troubles that are right in front of our face, pressing for attention. And we can look here and we can react as though it's blinding us and causing us chaos and craziness. Or we can focus and see the grace that's coming with Jesus Christ. So when you have a problem, you put a frame around it. You see this thing in the foreground, but you look beyond that and you insert Jesus Christ coming with grace for you. And that's how you begin to determine how you're going to react to things you're not expecting. It's not that you take your eyes off the crisis. It's in the foreground, but it's not the whole picture. You begin to blur it out by looking beyond it. So your hope comes from focusing on more than the crisis at hand. It comes from putting Jesus back in the frame of your situation. Here's the question that you can ask yourself as you're going through things in this culture, as you're looking at stuff. If the worst I can imagine in this scenario came to pass, if the worst I can imagine came to pass, how would I express my hope in Christ? If the worst that could happen in the scenario that you're facing came to pass, how could you express your hope in Jesus Christ? If you answer this question, you'll know how to be holy no matter what comes. 
So we're talking about five activities for the sanctified society, the sanctified church in an anxious culture. Number one helps us get our heads clear about hope. The second activity is this. We determine what to do and say based on God's moral schematic. I'm going to tell you why I picked that word in a second, but let's look at the scripture. 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Who said that? Who said that to us? You shall be holy, for I am holy. God, this is an easy one. God, right? You shall be holy, for I am holy, right? That's God's plan. This word scheme, a moral scheme, you know the idea of schematic. It's, 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 a, it's an image or a picture that has meaning for us. And God's moral scheme is in this book, right? This is his schematic for our lives. It's, it's the picture, it's the image, it's the, what we conform ourselves to. And this is what we do no matter what's going on. I wanted to pull up this word because it's actually the Greek word behind the phrase, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance in verse 14. That word is more like this, if I could translate it very crudely, it's do not be schemed by your passions. Don't let anybody take advantage of you through a scheme, scheming on your passions. People follow schemes, we like to follow plans. We run schemes, we, we, we follow schemes to try to get what we want. It's not a bad word, but sometimes it has a bad connotation. Let's look at a couple schemes that you're already familiar with. Look at this one. This is a way that we present the gospel. On this side, you have a person who, if they don't cross in belief, the cross of Jesus Christ, they'll stay and receive the wages of sin, which is death, which leads to a crossed out heart and a crossed out hope. We understand that. So if we understand that, we say, okay, I should cross this chasm that prevents me from going to God, I should believe in Jesus Christ, accept his crucifixion for me, accept that that makes me sanctified, and I'm gonna live in that, I'm gonna go over and receive God's free gift and have eternal life. You've seen that before. Perhaps you've used it or explained it that way. It's a really great picture of what we've been offered. It's a great picture of what we've been celebrating this morning. So that's one scheme you're already familiar with, and many of us are living by that scheme. Here's another one. Right, so you decide you want a lot of money and you decide I'm gonna have an idea, I'm gonna share that idea with a few people and I'm gonna get them to pay me for it and I'm gonna tell them in order to get a little bit more money, I'm gonna say they can share my idea with a few other people and they can pay them and they'll pay me a little bit of money and the person at the top gets rich. What kind of scheme is this? Pyramid, Pyramid scheme, wow, we all know it, right? Some of us have maybe tried to take advantage of it but most of us, if we've ever been involved, we've been taken advantage of it, by it, right? Um, these are schemes, and in the world, there's all sorts of schemes, there's all sorts of plans, all sorts of maps for us to get what we want, but we have to pick wisely because not all of them are good for us. So you need to choose wisely. So it says we've chosen God's schematic. In verse 14 it says, as obedient children. Obedient children follow God's schematic for their life. The word of God is their new guide. What has it replaced? If this is our new guide, what has it replaced? It replaces any plan to gratify the ignorant passions we had before we came to Christ. Some schemes take advantage of us. Some, some schemes take advantage of our good desires and bring about horrible outcomes. Some schemes evoke our evil desires. 
And depending on your age, you may have been involved in one or more of these kind of bad schemes than those who are younger in our room. You might say, I got caught up in it. I got trapped in that. Which means that you didn't stand apart from it. Obeying God is what sets us apart. That's why we are sanctified, so that we can be holy, so we can be apart from these kind of worldly schemes and get on God's plan for us. So what happens when you follow a bad scheme? You get hurt. You may take advantage of innocent or vulnerable people to get what you want. It's foolish and it's selfish. It's wrong. But when you obey God, when you follow his schematic, what do you get? What do you do? You bless people. You live better. You act justly. You forgive. You enable peace. You heal. You counteract Satan's work. You build up others. You don't seek pleasure for yourself. You seek pleasure that you can share with God and his people. This is what people in a sanctified society do. It's how we are holy together. We follow God's moral schematic. We're obedient. It protects us. So we've been talking about five activities for the sanctified society in an anxious culture. Number two is about obedience. Number three is that we engage the world with reverence for God and respect to the high cost paid for redemption. Let's move on to verse 17. We're going to spend a little bit of extra time on this one. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown throughout the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's a mouthful. There's a lot to take in with that. But let's start with the first idea, if you pray. And when we read this if, we need to understand it's more like since. Right, since you pray, meaning that he already knows that people that are gonna be reading this letter are the type of people that will be praying, people. And most of you here, I assume, would pray. If I asked you to raise your hand, every hand would go up. You pray. So since you pray, he, he's, he's setting us up for something, and it's in a warning. There's a tone of warning here that comes with an obligation. Since you pray, you need to conduct yourself with fear. You need to conduct yourself with reverence. It's not a, it's not a if you pray, maybe you'll do this, but since you pray, because you are people that call on God as your Father, you need to conduct yourself as reverence. Why? Because God is not only our help in times of trouble, he's also the judge over all we do. If we act without reverence for God, but we call him his father, it's like saying in public that we have no dad. I don't know about you guys, but the way it was in my house, if there was, we had two parents, and one of them was more lenient than the other. And it wasn't my dad. My dad would show up like the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park number one, right? With one step, everything changed, right? I had a father, and you could tell because as soon as he came, I came back in line, right? I, I had a reverence for him. I respected what he said. I didn't touch his stuff. 
I didn't wreck his car, you know, I didn't steal his money, all these things. I respected my father because I called him dad, you know. So here we have the idea of a, of a religion that would be based maybe only on prayer, this idea of intimate prayer, and the people in it are trying to skate by saying, well, I pray, so it doesn't really matter how I live, I pray. We cannot take God's favor for granted. We can't just do that. I want to give you three ideas here. You can write these down. I'll say them slow enough that you can do that. First of all is this one. God's mercy never gives us permission to act immorally. God's mercy never gives us permission to act immorally. What I'm saying is this. You can't come here, take this communion, and say, okay, I'm covered for another month. This sets me up for a couple of R-rated movies. This sets me up for a little stealing. This sets me up for a little cheating. It's okay, I took some blood, I ate the bread, I'm good. There's mercy for me. The Bible never lets us think that. We have the book of James that reminds us, show me what you do, right? God's mercy never gives us permission to act immorally. If the grace that's coming with Jesus Christ is our true desire, we can't try to skate by on a, on a, on a flimsy prayer life that has no reverence behind it. We can't skate by on these kind of prayers. You, you have said some of these yourself. Prayers like this, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord this, my soul to take. We teach that to our children. It's kind of weird, right? Hey, let's think about dying just before you go to bed. <laughs> it's not, we stopped doing that early on, right? Or we try to get by on our Father who is in heaven, how would be your name? We say, well, I used to say that all the time as a kid in school, and we used to think our schools were so much better, but I remember a lot of sin happening at my school, even though we started with our father. There wasn't a lot of reverence at my school. A lot of prayer, not a lot of reverence. Or if you come from a tradition, Hail Marys and rosaries. You could say the serenity prayer. God grant me the strength to accept what I can't and do what I can and such and such. Never been in that yet. We can have that. We can put it on the wall, frame it and all that kind of stuff. You can do the Johnny Appleseed Grace. Oh, the Lord is good to me, and so I thank the Lord for getting, you know. Yeah. Right? And if you really hold the O, you're really holy. Right? You can try to skate by on that. Or you might just be one of the people who said, well, let's, let's, let's say grace at least, bow our heads, and thanks, Lord, for the food. Amen. Thanks. It's a good day, Jesus. Thanks. Yay, God. Or you can try to skate back by on that, but it won't work because it's just prayer and it's just words. We need reverence. So God's mercy never gives us permission to act immorally. Prayer doesn't cover us. This is why. Holy people pray, but prayer doesn't make people holy. Holy people pray, but prayer doesn't make people holy. The gruesome, beautiful truth that pa Pastor Jordan talked to us about is that Jesus had to die for us. His blood covers our guilt, not our prayers. His blood is what takes away our shame, not our prayers. His death is the high price for our new life, and without Jesus, there is no redemption for sinners. Third, you have to know that being God's child brings you closer to his loving discipline. 
You have to know that being God's child brings you closer to his loving discipline. Because he calls you his son, or because he calls you his daughter, he's not going to tolerate the idea of you living out there as though you have no parents. He loves you. And so when you sin, it matters to him. And he won't let you off the hook. He loves you and he will discipline you. And your relationship matters that you walk with reverence. So what does it mean? We walk with the awareness that God can be honored or dishonored with every step of the Christian life. So we have to choose. We have to gauge the worthiness of what we are doing now in comparison to the value of Jesus' blood poured out for us in the pardon of our sins. So this is how we become holy. We weigh what we do against what we've celebrated today. And so in order to do that, I want to give you some questions that you could ask yourself, just check-in questions, a self-diagnostic, if you will, that you should ask yourself now and then. And go right after those activities in your life that you're thinking, I'm not sure, does this qualify as reverential activity? Does this qualify as stuff that I would do if my father was around? Here's what you could ask yourself. Did Jesus die so that I could do this in his name? This could be about your religion. As you decide, hey, I'm doing something in Jesus, my ministry. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Right? Did Jesus die so that I could do this for him? Second question. Did Jesus die so I could do, you fill in the blank, so I could do this to myself? You might be enjoying something that brings you pleasure. Something that makes you happy. Something that allows you to escape something else that you don't want to deal with. And you wonder and you ask yourself, did Jesus die so that I could do this to myself? The third question you can ask yourself, did Jesus die so I could do this to someone else? Whatever that activity is. Did Jesus die so that you could do that? If the answer to your questions is yes, then keep doing it. But if it's no, stop. Suddenly or slowly, but stop. Do less of that. Stop doing it altogether. And start doing something more worthy of the calling on your life. We are talking about these five activities of the sanctified society in an anxious culture. And number four, number three was about obedience. And, and making sure that we have reverence We have two more. The fourth activity is that we love other believers with a deep sincerity. Let's look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Four, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And his word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. We love other believers with deep sincerity. This section is about love. And I'm not going to go into the, take the time to define it because there are so 
many Christian books about love, and, and you, can, you can look that up. That's not the purpose of this point of, the, of, of this sermon. Peter's push is that we don't just seek to define love, but that we actually work at demonstrating love to one another in this sanctified society. Right? A love that's defined by 1 Corinthians 13. Right? That's the verse that we chose to remind us of what God calls us to, not because of romance, but because of who God is. Right? Now you need to understand, this is for the sanctified community. This is Christ's love that we share. All those terms that could be in your mind if you ever want to go there or write it down and check it out later if you haven't seen those verses before. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 7. A love that never fails us. But we're not talking about that. We're, talking about, we're not going to define it. We're just saying we need to live by it. This is the activity we need to live in. Why? Well, in our culture, so much anxiety, so much trouble, so much hardship comes from knowing people are watching us closely, but they don't love us sincerely. So much is coming from knowing that we're being watched, knowing that people will look at us, but they don't love us. That is not holy. In truth, that's actually degrading. Right, to look at someone and not see them the way God sees them, but see them as though they're there to give you pleasure. They're there to be judged by you. So you start analyzing them for things to, to, uh, against your own judgment. You know, do they, are they wearing the right shoes? Are those, are those Levi's jeans or are they knockoffs? You know, is that a good watch or a cheap watch? You know, did he get his hair cut properly? Are those designer glasses? Should he have been wearing contacts or should he get the eye surgery? Right? Did he come in with the right people today? What about his car? right? You know, is he working? He's probably not working. He's a lazy guy, right? All that kind of stuff. And, and we get so used to that, of walking around in society, feeling that someone's going to see us. We know we can't help it. People see us, but we know they don't love us. And that's not holy. It's degrading to, to live in a culture like that. And it causes all sorts of anxiety. And I don't even want to tell you all the things that are coming to my mind, having worked in youth ministry, of all the people that have suffered because they know that people are watching them, but they don't love them. Human beings who are desperate for love, they make awful decisions just to get attention. Right? It's because they get it, because there's always someone watching and willing to take advantage of an unloved person. So in the sanctified society, relationships have to go deeper than following each other's social media feeds. It has to go beyond showing off to impress each other, right? Because it's, it's got to be something real. It's a brotherly love. We're not satisfied. We're not sanctified to just sit beside each other in a service in these rows. We're getting involved with each other face to face during the week so that we can practice loving each other, practicing the one another's of the Christian faith, of the guide that God has given us. And if this sounds like small group ministry to you, that's right. That's what it is. That's what we want you to experience in our small group ministry. That's why we do it. Holy love is intense and sincere. It's deliberate. We create a shelter through our small group ministry, through this church environment that we have. We, we create a shelter from the insincerity we find in our culture. So here we say there's no malice and no deceit, and no hypocrisy, and no, en no envy, and no slander allowed. And we do that so we can do this, so that people can come in here knowing that when they're seen, they're loved, and allows them to do what Pastor Roger encourages us to do, is to take the roof off and put our walls down so that we can be seen and loved. 
If you don't have that shelter with other believers, and there's a good number of you that aren't currently in a small group, and I don't know if that means you have some other shelter that you can go to, but if you don't, we want you to be in a small group. You might be in a small group here, and it might not be that shelter. If it isn't, you all in that small group need to step up. You need to upgrade your level of love. Stop watching each other and start really loving each other. So that's the fourth activity. The fifth is this. We crave spiritual nourishment so that we can continue to grow. We crave spiritual nourishment so that we can continue to grow. Last two verses here. Chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Probably not another if, but since you have, long for it. I chose the word longing for, craving. You guys crave anything ever? Right now at my house, I can't help it, there's um, little Reese's peanut butter cups. I didn't even know. My wife had bought them for me. I saw them on the kitchen table one day. I said, whose are these? She says, they're for you. And I said, this is trouble. Right? They're sitting in the, in the house in a little cupboard. They're supposed to be out of reach. But I, I get there and I crave them. I find myself eating them all the time. Right? I'll go home and I'll have some now. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but I crave them. Right? This is, it's a longing for it. And, and that's who we are. And despite whatever else is going on, despite the chaos, we should have a longing for the sweet milk that has been given to us in God's word. It's an illustration, he says, like newborn infants, right? It's an image of the church just after we've come and been sanctified by Christ. We're like fresh babies, right? All my children were born naked, beautiful skin, no scars, no wounds, nothing to hide, just glorious, right? Clean again. And this illustration of being born again, I don't know if you've really grasped that. I certainly hadn't until I started wrestling this, but you know, you must be born again. Well, that includes getting a fresh start, right? In the church, in sanctification, that's how we appear. But babies, the illustration, they have this thing. They crave milk, right? They're hungry for milk, and they're only comforted when they get it. And every baby that I had, they know how to get fed, Right? It's just like they know what to do. So when I'd pick up my sons or my daughter and I'd put them in my, in my arms and they were hungry, they'd start hunting at my chest, pecking at it. It was so awkward. Right? I'm like, <laughs> you know, we need to give you some anatomy lessons or you know, get you guys into health classes or something like that. Right? But they're like, they're like hunting around for, for milk, right? And then uh, when they are feeding, um, right, and they don't get enough, they, they come away from what they're feeding on, right? And they're like, uh, uh. Right? Their mouth's moving. Like, you're like, look, he's still moving his mouth. He needs more food, right? And, and they just want it. And you know this. You're laughing because you've seen it, right? And, um, and then they finally eat their fill. And a baby eats their fill. They've been fussing. They get the food. And what happens to them after they're full? They sleep. They rest, right? And the cool thing is they, they drink all the milk they can. And then they go to sleep. And as they're sleeping, what happens? They grow. Eat. Rest. Grow. What a plan, what an illustration, right? And that's the idea, is that we would crave this word and that we'd, we'd internalize it, that we'd eat it up, we'd eat all we can, and then we'd rest, we'd see that, oh, God's word says this, I was worried about that out there, I, look, I was looking at the problem right in front of my face, but then I looked beyond it to see what God's doing, and I ate from that, and I, I took it in, I took in as much as I could, 
And then I, I realized I didn't need to panic anymore. I started resting. And as I rested on the truth, I started growing. It's an amazing illustration for us. You rest and, and the food helps you grow. This is why we preach the word and study the word with our small groups. This is the nourishment we, we crave for growth. The milk that children get in those early years, it does a number of things for them. Um, in those early months, it, it protects their immune systems. It stimulates and fuels growth. It helps and settles emotions. It, uh, it promotes bonding and, and promotes neurological development. So God's word is our spiritual milk. And what does it do when we internalize it? God's word keeps you healthy. It makes you a stronger believer. It helps you become more devoted to God and to each other. It makes you a more peaceful person. And it helps you become wise. But we have to internalize God's word for it to have that effect in our, on our lives. We can't come to church and just let a sermon wash over us. We don't shower in God's word. It's not a shower. It's not a bar of soap. You don't, you don't come and look at God's word because this week you did something wrong and said, oh, okay, I was feeling bad, so I'm going to flip open a verse and say it and, and, and let it wash over me. That's not the illustration. It's not a bar of soap that we pick up only when we see ourselves as dirty. It's enriched food designed to strengthen your soul. So it means we have to study it. And men, I want to come after you for this. I want us all to be leaders of, in the study of God's word. And so we are promoting the Bible study. And if you're not in a small group, we really want you to do this. We want you to, to be able to do this so that you can have the word of God, so that you can satisfy the cravings of the Christians in your home and say, hey, let me give you the food so that you can eat and you can rest and you can grow. So you should look at doing this. And if you can't get into a Bible study, take a course or buy a guide or meet with someone who knows how to study God's word and figure it out. Figure out how to get this truth deep into your heart on your own time because of this. Just like a baby can't eat once a week and expect to live, you can't live on one sermon alone. You can't grow. You'll be stunted. The sanctified society nourishes on the word of God because our life depends on it. Doesn't matter what's going on out there. We keep coming back to this so we can eat, that we can rest, and we can grow. So what do you do with these five things? How do you apply these things, right? Each one of them is there, it's a big list. Peter's got all sorts of stuff for us to think about, but what do you do with this list? Well, it's, it's meant to be lived by. We live by it. We're supposed to walk every day in these things. And if it seems like too much for you, then pick one. Pick two, pick something that, uh, that you need to apply to your life. Incorporate these instructions into your life personally, but together as a society that stands apart from what it means to be Canada or the US or part of the larger geopolitical unit. We do this together and we set, our parts, we set ourselves apart with an act of hope, with hope that sees beyond the problems right in front of our face. We set ourselves in obedience to God's plan. We set ourselves 
with reverence in our daily lives, with each step being weighed against what Jesus did for us. Should I do this? Would I do it again? Is that why Jesus had to die? We set ourselves apart by the way we love each other, where we agree to stop just looking at each other and degrading each other and evaluating each other against such silly things. But we promise a brotherly love. We create a sanctuary together. And we crave the word of God for more and more and more of it so that we can eat and rest and grow. It's as we adopt these things together, as we, we commit to these things personally, that we build this place into a sanctuary, another word related to sanctification and holiness, a place that's set apart, a place where we continue to enjoy coming so that when you walk through the doors and you see the people of God and they see you, right? They see you, you know that you're loved. You know that you're safe. You know that, that despite the trouble and the craziness and the chaotic way in which this world can go about problems, that you've come to a place where you can meet with God and it's gonna be okay. Thinking about the believers in Asia right now who we hear about the persecuted church that meet underground, they meet in secret, under threat, and what it must be like for them to come into a place that's sanctuary for them, to see other people that believe, to see other people that are committed to these things together. We're not there yet, and by, grace, by the grace of God, may we never be there. But that's what it is for us, to be a sanctified society. It's something different. It's something that God intended. It's why we need to become holy. Let's pray. God, we want to be holy because you are holy. You are set apart so magnificently from everything else we've known about. You're so much greater than uh, a starry sky or a huge mountain or a sunset at the ocean, Lord. Father, you created these things and, and yet, and they astound us and yet you are more than that and you're set apart. And Father, you chose to create one other thing to reveal yourself to the world and that's the church. To reveal your magnificence and you ask us to stand apart like you stand apart. Lord, we can't do that. None of us can make that happen by ourselves but as a community, if we commit to these things, if we listen to what Peter was teaching us, we can be that place a sanctuary for, for God's people, a sanctuary for anybody that wants to leave that chaotic way of living and all that fear and all that anxiousness and all that trouble, all that degrading stuff, and find something with you and your people, Lord, that's just beautiful, something that's been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ that's going to last forever. So God, I pray that you'd help us understand that we are marked for such greatness. Yes, we appear in Jesus' clothes that are too big for us in the beginning, but Lord, by your help through the Holy Spirit as we take in this word, we'll grow into those clothes. Help us to be worthy of this calling to be your people. Help us achieve holiness, Lord. We ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. 
We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.